you wanted the best, you've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the, world. in the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. The CEOs, authors, thought leaders, visionaries, and motivators. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times. Because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. Hi, folks. This is Voss here from thechrisvossshow.com. There you go, ladies and gentlemen. There, and ladies, things that makes it official. Welcome to the big show. We certainly appreciate you guys coming by. As always, we have the most amazing minds that come on the show, and uh, we recommend that you refer the show to your family, friends, and relatives. Go to Goodreads.com for just Chris Foss, LinkedIn.com for just Chris Foss, Chris Foss One on the Tickety Talkety, and all those crazy places around on the internet. Today, we have an amazing author on the show. He's the author of the latest book that's come out February twelfth, twenty twenty-four. It's called The Gambler's Game based on the true story of the man who broke the bank at Monte Carlo. And the stuff that goes into this is going to be very interesting and some of the twists and turns of the tale from a family story, et cetera, et cetera. So we'll get into it here in a second as we have the author on the show. James Darnborough joins us on the show with us today. And he grew up in London, has lived in and worked in the media business in South Africa, Australia, London, and New York. He currently lives in Los Angeles, California, and his investigations for his book, The Gambler's Game, have taken him to Colorado, Illinois, Mexico City, London, and Monaco, where he met with the Casino di Monte Carlo directors. Welcome to the show, James. How are you? Good morning, Chris. I'm very well, and it's a great pleasure to be here. A great pleasure to have you as well. Give us your dot-coms. Where do you want people to see you on the interwebs? The easiest is the website, which is thegamblersgame.com. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, we're very active on Instagram and Facebook and everything else. Just look for The Gambler's Game. There you go. So give us a 30,000 overview of what's inside your book. This is the story of the only American to break the bank playing roulette in Monte Carlo at... 1910 and the story follows him from small town illinois he Mm -hmm. was born on a farm in near a little town called lebanon in southern illinois and he was a pitcher baseball pitcher incredibly talented and very very fast and he played in the midwestern league against these amazing teams with incredible names like minneapolis Millers and the Omaha Omahogs and all these things. And uh, all the time he was learning how to play roulette. And so the story is written in the present tense and we follow him as he becomes better and better and better. And eventually he ends up in Monte Carlo where he lived for eight years. There you go. And evidently broke the bank as well. So there you go. So now there's some origins to this story. It's a historical fiction book. Tell us about some of the origin of the characters in this book. Well, what's interesting is that it is very much like a lot of fictional tales. Like, for example, the Russian writer Dostoevsky wrote a story Mm -hmm. called The Gambler in 1860-something, I believe. Mm -hmm. And it's extraordinary because this is remarkably like that. It's about a guy who's nobody special. He's just from a small town. Mm 
mm-hmm. and he seeks fame and fortune. And then, of course, it's all about does he get the girl, does, does he not get the girl, and there's all these twists and turns and adventures and everything else. So you've got to remember that this is a time when you know the frontier in terms of anything beyond the Rockies was still pretty untamed. Mm-hmm. Gambling was everywhere. And the saloons were, was where it was at, mm. but it was pretty, a pretty risky and certainly, you know, unpredictable life mm. full of, full of treachery and, you know, who do you trust? Mm. And the answer is nobody <laughs> except, <laughs> except yourself. And oh. so that's, yeah, right. So that's the story. What was fun for me was finding out, you know, I mean, in the book, I've got all the, all the baseball teams and I, uh, thanks to, you know, the internet, I can, I know all their names, where they were from, how, how much they weighed, how tall they were, how magnificent their moustaches were. And so what I wanted to do was to give them an opportunity to talk to each other so we could see what they were really like and that's there you that's, go. that's the experience yeah there's some family members in this book as well tell us a little bit about that well he is my grandfather mm-hmm. so i know i i'm english however mm-hmm. that is because he eventually emigrated from the states to monaco and then to the united kingdom where oh, he wow. spent the remainder of his days and in fact he's buried in, our, in a little village in the chilton hills between oxford and london oh. in our, our little village where, where we still live and so it's just him i mean that's the thing is that he you know he really escaped from the little town mm-hmm. because the you know the baseball players were like the movie stars of today mm-hmm. they were really really famous the newspapers mm-hmm. that that baseball was it that was yeah. it there was America's nothing else exactly and there was nothing else there was no american football there was no there was no radio there was no tv there was no cinema nothing so the newspapers really reported every single game ball by ball and so the guys especially the pitchers they were they were famous and he wanted that mm-hmm. he wanted to travel and being part of a baseball team is the best way to travel unless you're you know like a snake oil salesman in the old west <laughs> mm-hmm. so that's that's what he did and the trains were amazing you know the trains in those days the trains were like a spider's web of railroads across the whole of north america and so he mm-hmm. took full advantage of that and then he he started playing roulette mm-hmm. and kept on traveling so now was this a story that had been kind of passed through your family and stuff and and you became aware of it how did you come across the story and and uh, decide this is something you wanted to tell the story on well, you know, like any family, if we have we have legends and myths and and mm-hmm. and stories that have, I'm sure, exaggerated themselves through each generation. <laughs> like everybody, it's like when you search on ancestry.com, you look for the heroes and villains, don't you? And mm-hmm. it's it's a it's a case of making sure that you can verify the facts. And thanks to the millions and millions of people around the world who scan in newspaper archives. So I've got, I've got newspaper clippings going back to the 1880s from mm-hmm. tiny little towns in Colorado and also the New York Times and the London Times and the, the, all these, the San Francisco Chronicle. I mean, a lot of these papers that still exist, but a lot don't. But you can find them. And incredibly easily now. You remember we used to have to go to libraries and go through microfiches? Oh, yeah. Right? 
I know. Now you can just open up your laptop. And so that's amazing. Now, I don't trust all journalists. I mean, especially in the 1890s and 1900s. So it's good to get a few facts Mm -hmm. and then, you know, try and build on that. Because I wanted it to be as true to the actual real life events as possible. So all the people are real. I mean, 90, 95% of the characters in this story are real people. And I thought that was that was very, very important to make it as real as possible. And there's some overlap of the um, of the downtown Abbey show and your family and also the characters in the book. Tell us a lot about that, how that played out. Yeah, I can't really explain how this happened, but mm-hmm. Downton Abbey, the, A New Era, is the latest film. Mm-hmm. And in it, in case you haven't seen it, there is a film crew who arrive at Downton Abbey to make a film. And it's a silent film. I mean, this is like 1920 or something. Mm-hmm. And Downton Abbey agreed to do it because they'll get the money to pay for the roof. And it's really quite, it's quite a lovely little story. Anyway, the film within the film is called The Gambler. And it's about this woman who is trying to stop the main character playing roulette because um, she's in love with him, but she doesn't want to marry a gambler. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so that, that her name is Miss Erskine, which is my grandmother's name, and his name is Bill, which is my grandfather's name. So wow. basically, so Julian Fellows, who <laughs> created the story, he so I, I checked this because um, I actually hadn't seen the film when I heard about it. So now I've got the script because I wanted to check everything. And my editor in L.A., is a longtime family friend of, of the Fellows family. And he said, mm-hmm. this is quite normal. Julian Fellows takes real people from real life, from, from you know, mm-hmm. history, and then changes the characters a little bit. Wow. But he wasn't in the least bit surprised. Wow. And, you know, because, I mean, it's because in those days, I mean, this, this guy, Bill Darnborough, was incredibly famous. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, and they still write about him now in, in you know, in dark, gambling corners of the internet they're still trying to work out how he did it <laughs> wow this is a pretty amazing story and you've got quite the overlap there the famous films and all that good stuff so tell us a little bit about yourself is this your first book what got you wanting to write i think you do a few other trades like acting and etc cetera, etc cetera. tell us about how you grew up and what it was like and and got you down the field and roads you are today yeah, I, I wanted to be an actor, but my father was a film producer and he dissuaded me and <laughs> everyone around me. <laughs> you know, a life of a life of poverty and disappointment is is really <laughs> not what this is all about. And you know, I I that just happened. So I got into the media mm-hmm. business and I was a magazine publisher. Mm-hmm. And I published my first magazine in, I left England, went to South Africa. I was really young, 19. And I published my first magazine was a PGA golf magazine in South Africa. And because uh, they didn't have one. So I made mm-hmm. one for them. And that was, and it sort of went from there. And I did one for the Rugby World Cup in South Africa, which is the one where Mandela handed the World Cup trophy to Francois Pinar, the captain of South African rugby team. And that was extraordinary. Oh, wow. Because, you know, I was right there, front row seat, because I'd done the official magazine, and this was a moment that changed the world. Mm-hmm. When when Mandela was released from prison and became president, that was wonderful. But honestly, this rugby match changed, not only in South Africa. And we had no idea what a big deal it was. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there were 40 or 50,000 of us in the stadium in Johannesburg. I didn't know that 2 billion people were watching it on TV, mm-hmm. apparently. And I didn't, I didn't even know there were 2 billion televisions in the world then. 
it was in 95. There you go. But, so, and, I, and I carried on doing magazines. I, I moved to Australia in South Africa in my 20s, Australia in my 30s. Then I came to California because, you know, London is wonderful. It was great to grow up there. And I love visiting. I go all the time. I've just come back from seven weeks in London. But, you know, it's like a lot of big cities. Visiting and living and working there are two completely different things. So I'm very, very lucky to be now in Southern California. I've been here for 10 years. And, there you go. I love it. It's raining, really, really raining today. Amazingly. Yeah. One of <laughs> my friends sent me a, a video and it just looks like a hell of a storm again. Yeah. Crazy what's going on with the weather there. It's, 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 it's a little, it's getting a little hard if you're a, cl a climate change denier to deny it anymore. I, even I was kind of skeptical, but now like, it's just, it's crazy what's going on. But uh, I don't know. I guess I better quit burning my fossil fuels in the backyard all the time. So you're an actor. I noticed you do some artist work too on your website here. Yeah, I did. I, you know, we all did weird things in lockdown and I'm no <laughs> exception. You know, it was either, either learn Mandarin or, you know, sit yeah. around watching box sets of whatever on Netflix. Yeah. And I just happened to see a guy on YouTube doing pendulum painting and he just had this amazing oh, contraption. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He hung it from the ceiling. So I cleared out the garage and, and, you know, you find me three days later and there's more paint on me than on the actual canvas. <laughs> I, I did giant canvases on the, on the floor of the garage and then had this, you know, pendulum paint flow going and doing these amazing cylindrical patterns, just mm -hmm. basically using gravity. And it just mm -hmm. got, it got bigger and bigger and I kept doing it and kept doing it. And now you can get them on, you know, phone cases and bags and I don't know, even yoga mats apparently, but, people buy the prints occasionally but it was it's just one of those nice creative things to do yeah there you, you know, go you feel like you've made something from scratch that's going to outlive you and yeah I, I like that i like the quicksilver one that's really cool looking and then the the multi-people mover quadrophenia ones oh, those yeah. are really cool to look at they're just interesting they seem simple in your the format but then you're like no oh, it's really you get in there. Anyway, I might be looking at it too hard here. So you do all these different things. So you, 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 when did you start writing the book for this? This was a complete accident. So there was a, a guy in England was writing a book about U.S. air bases in England during the Second World War. Mm -hmm. And my father had made a movie using one of these bases back in the 50s. And so oh. this guy was researching. He got in touch with me. My, my father passed away a long time ago got in touch with me and said, can you give me any more information? And we got, we exchanged a few emails. And then in a very English sort of way, one email arrived and he goes, I hope you don't mind. I Googled you. And <laughs> he's been in England too long. Yeah. And he said, you're the grandson of Bill Darnborough, the man who broke the bank of Monte Carlo, the baseball player. Oh. And so you're, you're in LA and you're, he said, you're in the property business. So you must know all the film guys in LA and I'm thinking sure I've got Chris Nolan on speed dial I don't know anybody in the film <laughs> business. but he said he said why don't you write a screenplay it'll be a blockbuster it's got yeah. everything it's got all the ingredients HBO will snap it up yeah thought, okay I've never written a screenplay and actually my wife said when, when I, I pronounced this is what I was going to do she said no 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 you don't get away with it this easily this is kind of what you've been waiting for it's the push that you need to actually write the whole book yeah and so 
I started and I started doing, you know, four hours a night. I was working during the day and I was doing four hours a night. And then suddenly it became two, three in the morning. And then it just took over my whole world. Yeah. And I spent the next three years putting it together and refining it and refining it and editing it. And, and here we are. Here we are yeah. today. Yeah, launching the book and i think what's really cool about this story is that you know it's based in fact it's based in something that happened now when you, when you say break the bank can you tell us what the actual breaking the bank means specifically it's it's not what you'd expect it's mm -hmm. actually a very clever marketing ploy that francois blanc came up with and he's the guy that started the casino de monte carlo in the 1860s mm -hmm. and what happens is if you're playing roulette Mm -hmm. and you deplete all the funds of the table you win all the funds all the chips that they've got in reserve you win all of it mm -hmm. then the chef de parte who is like a uh, like a pit boss right in in mm -hmm. casinos in the states he has to signal for more money to come to be brought to the table so play can continue so in those what? days it was about 70 70 000 francs it's quite a lot anyway mm -hmm. so if you then win all of that as well then it is called breaking the bank right. and they had this amazing ceremony where they would come out from the director's office with this black cloth and it was sort of like a some kind of a funeral or something and they would drape this black cloth over the entire grid and the wheel of the roulette table and say wow. the table is closed and the bank has been broken wow. and so people from all over would come and see what's going on because this is a big big spectacle and of course wow. the newspapers would write about it which wow. meant publicity for the casino Ah, and it's just you know you know a lot of lotteries use this line it could be you mm -hmm. and that's exactly i mean francois blanc was a genius and things like this he also i don't i don't know if you have you ever been to monte carlo i haven't I have haven't. you seen have you seen pictures of the cars outside oh, the casino yeah, yeah, yeah. right okay he'd so Optimal, he did this yeah. so yeah. in 1911 they had the very first rally in Monte mm -hmm. Carlo and this was the precursor to the Formula One which we all know now mm -hmm. and he was the first person in the world to put tarmac outside or on or on the ground and so uh, above the asphalt he had tarmac and he said right all the cars at the end of the rally park out the winners at least park outside the casino steps mm -hmm. and that's how that tradition started okay. so again you know it's again you look at these cars you look at these ferraris and lamborghinis and aston martin you think i might go in this room because i might be able to win that car yeah, yeah. so you know marketing genius park park the nice cars up front yeah and then the allure of, of the story, you know, it's, I mean, James Bond was always seemed to be in Monte Carlo sometimes, you know, there's always that allure of that whole thing. I love the boats that go into Monte Carlo. You see the boats. Oh my God. It's crazy. I, well, it seems pretty small. Too. That's what's I know it's actually, here. it's a, it's a tiny place. It's the biggest, yeah. the biggest central park. Yeah. And really? but, you know, it, wow. yeah. And it's all because of the casino that it came. Two things happened. Mm -hmm. The casino was built and then a railway was built from Nice. Oh, and that's how yeah. you, there were no roads. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're kind of, you know, old rutted roads that are left over from mm -hmm. Roman chariots, but the, the railway, just like in the States, the well, everywhere in the world, really, the railway mm -hmm. changed everything. So people, no one in Monaco is allowed to gamble in the casino. Oh, really? Yeah. 
Wow. So everyone had to come from France. So they come across the across the border, not far, you know, from wow. East or, or Italy, from the other side of Menton, mm-hmm. from, you know, from Milan and places. And yeah, and but otherwise, if you're J.P. Morgan, you would come on your yacht. Mm-hmm. So he he had a yacht, a steam yacht, mm-hmm. with two funnels, and it was called the Corsair. And he used to he used to go there a lot, but it was Russian dukes and you know French counts and Italian contessas and British lords and ladies. I mean, it was wow. an incredible time. But the casino itself hasn't changed much. It's still got these amazing chandeliers. It's still very quiet. You have to dress well and all that. So it's they won't let me in. That's for sure. Of course they will, Chris. Chris, of course they will. You're, I, you've, I, got, you've got a suit somewhere. I, yeah, there's a suit somewhere, but I'd, <laughs> I'd be trying to show up in flip flops and the shorts. They'd throw me out of my ear, I'm sure. And then it'd be like, "Hey, where's the where's the fifty cent betting table? Fifty cent, <laughs> or fifty cent uh, betting table?" Um, <laughs> you know, that's funny that they do that whole drama thing with the you know draping over the roulette wheel and you know the whole. The, the bank has been broken, you know, it, it, here in Vegas, you know, when you, when you, you know, do that well at a table, they just give you, uh, you know, two tickets to Britney Spears and, you know, a cheap steakhouse and they comp you for the night. <laughs> right. Or they, or they take you around the back and ask you what's going on. <laughs> We've all seen that scene in, in, in casino from the thing with the hammer. Yeah. There's a lot of that that goes on sometimes in Vegas. It doesn't end well. I never. I, I've I've known people that have ended up in the black book. I'm like, really? Seriously? You can't go into a casino? Fuck! What did you do wrong? Who who hurt you, or who'd you hurt? But yeah, it's it's a funny town. It, it's funny when you win a lot in Vegas. Now they kick you out too. They don't like people who win that are really good at winning. It's kind of weird. It's kind of weird. It's, I think it's the only place where they can ban you for winning too much. And you're like, what? What the hell? So there you go. So people have to read the novel to find out more, the historical fiction novel, and uh, what's inside of it. I think it's cool that it has your family in it as well, and that so it's a personal story. This would make a great screenplay, though. I, 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 I agree, and I'm really hoping that you know HBO or Netflix or somebody picks it up. It should be yeah. an eight or ten part. But what, what's extraordinary is the amount of things that we found. So my grandfather was very, my grandmother, I should say, was very fastidious about keeping things very well organized and she kept mm-hmm. everything. She's got a, uh, a Royal Enclosure badge from Ascot, mm-hmm. yeah, Ascot race meeting from 1909. And we've still got it. And I've got letters, loads and loads of letters from people. I'll give you one quick example. It was the guy who invented the machine gun. His name's Hiram Maxim. Mm-hmm. And he was an engineer, obviously, but he was fascinated with roulette because he was trying to work out statistical probability. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how, how basically, like everybody, he wants to know how do you win. And he wrote this book, which I've got. He wrote a book in 1904 called Monte Carlo Facts and Fallacies. And it's unbelievably complicated how he's got pages wow. and pages and pages of mathematical calculations just goes on forever and ever and ever. Anyway, I've got a letter that he wrote to my grandfather. And so he'd been watching him or he'd paid someone to watch him. And he knew exactly the, the, how much he'd won, how much he'd lost and what he'd been betting on. And mm-hmm. right at the end of the letter, he says, but please, will you share with me some more details, some further information about your system? Mm-hmm. You know, yours, yours faithfully, Sahara Maxim. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know if my grandfather answered that letter, but if I was him, I wouldn't have. 
<laughs> and this is the you know the, the question I get asked a lot these days is how did he do it? Yeah. And you know, and I have a fair idea. Mm. It's a lot of patience and you know yeah. more patience. But if I knew for sure what his system was then chris i would have invited you down to my super yacht in uh, monaco harbor where true. we'd be having this chat and i would have taken that invite <laughs> you know i i've seen i don't gamble a lot i i i the only gambling i do is with with business and being an entrepreneur but i i've done a little bit of gambling in vegas when i first moved down there for the first month or two i was like let's play and i remember one time i was in the old desert inn before Wynn bought it and tore it all down and put up his stupid hotels. I mean, you know, stupid there, you know, whatever. But, you know, when he wasn't poking holes with pens and famous art, I shouldn't make fun of a guy with one bad eye because I have it too. So maybe that's why it's funny. But I was at the old Desert Inn and I went in there. I was I was there with the night. I think I had a girlfriend or something. Yeah, yeah. We were there visiting for a weekend or something. And so I was up late and I was at the blackjack table. And I, you know, I'm, I, I can't gamble with the shit, but you know, blackjack, I, I, you know, you can kind of win a little bit here and there. And I was playing and this guy comes on the table and he just starts running. Just, I mean, he just, he looks like some kid who, I don't know, drove in on a motorcycle and he just starts gambling in a way I'd never seen and never seen since. And he's like, he's going all in on a hand and you're like, that doesn't look like that's that good of a hand. And then sometimes he's a $5 bet, now fold out. And every time he goes in hard, he wins like heavy, right? And then you'll see him pull back and, and go light and then he'll lose. And he just kept running this thing. It was like, you know, $500 bet this round, $5 bet, $10 bet the next round. It was, it was insane, the system. And I, I, to this day, I have no idea what he was doing. But it got so bad that he was winning so much, just within a very short time period, that, you know, they, they tried changing the, they tried change, they changed the dealers on us. And then they brought in another dealer and he started mocking the dealer. And it was like, extraordinary he started mocking it you know started talking shit to the dealer and i'm just like you know can we all just get along and it got to the point the pit boss came over and was trying to get him off the table and he's like, hey you know you're you know you're running a pretty strong game here you want to you know we can comp you and this guy was balls out something and and you know he's trying to offer him all these comps and dinner. He's like, hey, you know, if you want to take a break, you know, we'll we'll comp you a few nights of this. That we'd love to have you stay. And what are you doing? And the guy's just like, fuck off, eh? He's just like cold as ice, right? And so the pit boss goes, what do you what do you what do you want? So we can you know have you stay at the hotel and and uh, you can play for a few days. And he goes, you know that motorcycle that's in the front lobby, and you know how they sometimes they have like a car or something in the lobby. Right. He goes, I want that. And then I'll get off the table. And the boss goes, no, we can't do that. That thing's you know, expensive. He goes, I'm going to keep running your table. Just an asshole to everybody, you know, except for those players. And I'd never seen it before in my life. And last time I left, he was, he was just running that table, man. He had a pile of chips like a mile long when he got done. So it was just extraordinary to watch the intrigue of it. Yeah. They yeah. should have given him the motorbike. 
They should, I think that was what they should have done at the end. But I mean, it, I mean, he was mocking the dealer. He's, you're an idiot. Oh, you're going to change the dealers on me. I see what you're doing. And I'm just like, holy shit, man. You know, I, don't, I think the Desert Inn might still be run by the mob. You know, I don't know, but it's the 90s. I think, I think back then, El Rancho or, I think there was only one or two that were still mob run back then, but, right. but still, you know, you don't want to go pushing your way around Vegas. There's there's all sorts of seedy characters, including me there. So, okay, uh, so imagine what it was like in the old in the yeah. old saloons. So imagine yeah. if you're you know in a place like in in Nevada, there's a silver town called Eureka, mm-hmm. and they had I think it was called the Gem Saloon at one point. And so what, what my grandfather would do is he would turn up at these saloons with his own roulette wheel. Mm-hmm. So he had his own roulette wheel and a little fold-up felt grid for the numbers. And mm-hmm. he would show up. And so they've already got a license because they're playing cards in there. Okay, so they don't have, doesn't have to worry. He's not breaking any laws. And he goes straight up to the saloon owner and says, let's have a roulette game going in your saloon and you get a cut. And it'll cost you nothing. Because he's got his own chips, so he's his own house. And that's what he did for years and years and years. He toured around the saloons. Now, if you think Vegas is dangerous and you've got to watch your language oh, and yeah. how, 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 what kind of respect you show to the dealers, imagine what it was like in those days when they really would yeah. take you back, right out the back and shoot you and there'd be zero repercussions. <laughs> I mean, you know, there were, I mean, because basically, I mean, there was, there was a point where civility stopped at Denver. You know, anything beyond Denver, you're on your own. You're on your own. There you go. I'll do it. I'll do it. So any final tease outs you can tell us that's inside of the book? I think that it's really designed for anybody that wants to go on a truly remarkable adventure. Mm-hmm. And I think that this is such an extraordinary story that if it wasn't actually true, you wouldn't believe it. Yeah. There's, you know, you asked me about the the family rumors and legends. There was one, which is that Bill went across the Andes with mules with bags full of gold. And I just, you know, I found a letter that someone had written to the New York Times about him being in Bolivia and Chile and Peru, but nothing further. And so it's not in the book. So my, my point is, is that I, I want you to understand that this all really happened. There's 190 characters in this book wow. and 90% of them are real people. Mm-hmm. So like all the, all the guys in the, the horses and the saloons, like Eugene Madden ran a saloon in Denver called mm-hmm. Madden's Irishman. And he had a barman called Michael Flaherty. Mm-hmm. And this is in 1888. I've got Michael Flaherty's photograph. Mm-hmm. And so that's how, that's the lengths that I went to to make this as absolutely, absolutely true to the facts. And it is an extraordinary, it is an extraordinary story. And I agree, it'll make a great screenplay. But you know, when you go to, I don't know about you, but when you go to see a film and the first line you see on the black screen is based on a true story, I'm hooked. Yeah, that makes it definitely more interesting. Yeah. Yeah, because you're like, this really happened. Let's find out what's up. So there you go. Well, it's been fun to have you on. People will get a great romp through on the book. I think it's cool the tie-ins with Downtown Abbey and and certainly the 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 historical nature of the of the history of your family. And everyone loves the good gambling, beating the bank, and uh, you know, 
anybody who can pull that off story. So thank you very much for coming on. James, give us your dot coms one more time as we go out. Right. So the gamblers game.com and the Instagram is if you search for the gamblers game, you'll get it, but it's actually bill underscore Darnborough D A R N B O R O U G H. But if you just, if you look for the gamblers game, you'll find Dostoyevsky's book, from the 1860s and then and one other and then then mine more recently and of course you can buy the audiobook on amazon and kindle and the paperback version the audio guy is fantastic because it's an american it's an american narration it's an american character but he also had to do russian accents and german and french and italian and mexican spanish and scottish and an english lady and we found this amazing guy. His name's Kevin Clay, and he recorded it in Arkansas. Oh wow! And I, I couldn't. I know it was. It was amazing. We we use people from all over the world from this, but the Kevin in Arkansas is the only American I know that can actually talk in different accents. So you've got two people talking to each other. One is Russian, one is German, and and he can pull that off. And not many people can do that. And I'm very, very pleased that we managed to find him. Fun for for audible book readers. So thank you very much, James, for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Chris. It's been a real pleasure. And I love you. I love your podcast. It's great. There you go. Thank you. I love it too. I love it too. It's, it's a good podcast. I'm going to keep it. 15 years, I'm going to keep it. So thank you very much for coming on the show, James. Thanks to our audience for tuning in. Go to goodreads.com, Fortress Chris Foss, LinkedIn.com, Fortress Chris Foss, Chris Foss, one on the TikTokity, and Chris Foss, Facebook.com, wherever where people just look for us. Thanks for tuning in. Be good to each other. Stay safe, and we'll see you guys next time. <laughs>